0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlawry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q and A's with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Well, Glenn Lowry, thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview with me. We're sitting in a a pretty kick-ass studio here in the Manhattan uh, Institute in uh, New York. The the clue's in the name. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, you're a very esteemed academic. You could be sitting in the ivory tower and isolating yourself there. But as well as doing that, you post video podcasts to the internet, conversations with a wide variety of people. Yeah. Why do you do that?
1: Well, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, It's a lot more interesting than the dull, dry, specialized, arcane, you know, parsing, dotting I's and crossing T's as uh, economic theorist, although I have great respect for my colleagues who do that kind of work. I'm in my 70s. I don't have anything to prove. Uh, If I've got something to say, I get to say it, you know, and I get to say it and people react and and that's uh, gratifying. Uh, So, you know, at this stage in my career, I'm, I'm kind of letting my hair down a little bit and sitting back and uh, taking it all in and you know letting my voice be heard and it's it's a lot of fun I,
0: and what what does this give you that's academia can't give you
1: thousands of followers hmm. um, I can make an income by doing what I love, which I was doing, of course, when I'm teaching and when I'm uh, writing academic work. But, um, you know, I, I somehow feel that the sky is the limit here, you know, that I can reach a broader range of people. I can have influence beyond the um, the fraternity, uh, the academic fraternity. Um, things that I really care about. So I talk a lot about race and racial inequality and racial justice and uh, so on. These are things that I care about and I think I could maybe move the needle a little bit uh, with my contributions. Um, So uh, (laughs) my chairman of uh, the economics department at Brown University asked me for my annual report we are obliged to, you know, write a memo explaining ourselves. What have we accomplished and what have we done? And I hadn't published a single word in an academic journal <laughs> in the whole year, and I didn't know what I would say. Uh, so instead, I just posted to him the summary of the work that I've done at uh, Substack. You know, the essays that I've put up, the uh, excerpts from the podcast that I've published there, and... Uh, so forth and so on, and uh, mailed it over to him. And he said, wow, that's so impressive. You're reaching 10 times as many people and all of that. Mm. So I, you know, I did get a little bit of credit, but I think they're also giving me um, leeway because I'm, you know, I'm an old geezer and nobody's really <laughs> expecting me to be pushing the frontier anymore.
0: Is everyone at the economics department <laughs> at Brown now going to start a podcast?
1: I think everyone who could do it well Will be motivated to consider it. Um, my colleague Emily Oster right,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. uh, has
1: uh, moved in this direction with her uh, kind of stuff that she's been doing uh, very effectively. I think uh, you know she's she's uh, smart and she's uh, got a lot of interesting things to say. So that's one example.
0: How did you get into being a, a- I don't know, how do you describe yourself? A video podcaster, a conversationalist, a, 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 a vlogger? Like, what, you, what is this thing that you're doing?
1: Uh, I don't know, video podcaster seems to work pretty well. Yeah. How did I get into this? Well, I have to thank Robert Wright. Uh, Bob Wright of uh, bloggingheads.tv, uh, who's the proprietor and uh, originator of that suite of uh, podcasts, uh, where the Glenn Show uh, had its origins. Uh, back in 2008. Hmm. Um, And, um, you know, every two or three times a month I guess I'd put up a new content there and, you know, there's a community and uh, my contributions were well received by the blogging head's uh, audience Um, and uh, did that for years. And John McWhorter, my conversation partner, and I uh, initiated our now nearly 15-year conversation at uh, Bob's uh, platform at Blogging Heads. Uh, that's how I got into it and found that I liked it, uh, that it was relatively easy to do, uh, and that it gave me an outlet. I, mean, you know, I see a book that I think is interesting. I call up the author and I say, hey, you want to talk about your book? Uh, something is happening in politics or in the culture that I am you know, stimulated by. I have a platform and I can um, take those issues up publicly.
0: And one of the things about blogging heads, if I uh, remember correctly, is that it encourages sort of productive arguments and conversations with people who are not necessarily sharing your political positions.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that was Bob's, uh, you know, business plan or his, his vision. Uh, it would be, you know, people who had disagreements but were showing how we're modeling in their conversation how to agreeably engage with one another, even though they took different sides of the issue. He and uh, Mickey Kouse are, right. were the, like, prototypical pair. John McWhorter and I are also, in our way, uh, doing a similar thing. Right. He's, you know, a New Yorker and a, a liberal Democrat, although I don't know if he confessed to that. and, and uh, <laughs> I'm not.
0: Uh, right. <laughs> that, that seems to be kind of something that is in shorter supply uh, on the modern internet uh, than it was in the sort of the heydays of blogging uh, when you first started doing blogging heads TV. Is that, does that sound like a fair statement?
1: Uh, that, that, that may be right. I'm, uh, <laughs> beyond looking at my own stuff, I don't perhaps spend enough time on social media to have an informed opinion about what the trends are, but that sounds consistent with what I'm hearing.
0: As you've been doing this work as you've been broadcasting and um, publishing on the internet over over the last 15 years or so have there been any sort of changes in the in the culture that have become evident to you
1: well it's certainly grown I mean there's there's just a lot more action Mm -hmm. it seems to me Um, you know everybody's got a podcast My wife, my lovely wife, I always refer to her as my lovely wife, because she is lovely LaJuan, LaJuan Lowry, uh, is a podcast addict. She's got like a dozen people that she's following when she's cooking or, you know, just uh, puttering around in the house. She's got a tablet and she's got one of these or another or another of these correspondence whom she uh, enjoys. That's how she gets her information. She doesn't trust mainstream media. So I don't think she's alone. I think there are a lot of people. I gather from the comments that I'm getting back from viewers of the Glenn show that there are a lot of people who spend a fair amount of time consuming this kind of product. So I think it's it's become more ubiquitous, more widespread uh, as a medium. Uh, But in terms of the texture, the character of what's available, uh, I, I don't feel well-informed enough to have a sense of what's what's happened over the last 10 years. I'm sure there's an interesting story to tell there. Wow, that
0: sounds like a, a position of sort of uh, blissful and awareness, maybe. Something
1: like that, of yeah. being 74 years old.
0: You're not sort of participating in the culture wars on Twitter or on social media by the sounds of things, but sometimes the culture wars come to you, and you must notice that. For instance, if Amy Wax comes on your shows and uh, <laughs> says something provocative about race, uh, and then the the internet explodes in outrage, uh, how do you notice
1: that? Uh, well, I get uh, you know uh, copied on some of the posts at uh, Twitter, and I get notification, and I'll and I'll look. Uh, mainly though, it's through the um, comments that are being contributed. Uh, at Substack and at YouTube, to the post, to the podcast post that I put up, I read those comments um, pretty faithfully, uh, and it takes time, but I I want to have some sense of how people are experiencing what it is that I'm putting out there, and um, and in that way I get a sense of you know the nature of the controversy, but you know when when people say there's a fierce battle on twitter about this or that or that twitter is now driving the behavior of um, journalists and i don't in a way i kind of don't know what they're talking about because it's kind of mysterious to me why you know i I look at my phone some idiot has you know who is anonymous i don't know who it is has called me a name or has you know why should i care you know
0: You've been called a lot of names in, in your history as a public intellectual and academic, and you've, had, you've been hated by the, the right and you've been hated by the left and you've been loved by the left, and you've been loved by the right at different times, and uh, depending on different positions you've taken. Yeah. Is there anything different about it when it comes in the time of social media than uh, what it was like before social media?
1: Yeah, I'm sure there is. Let me see if I can say what it is. Uh, I mean for speed of reaction, it, it's instantaneous you know um, uh, I don't know I don't know I'm just kind of coasting along here I mean but you are right I've I've been left I've been right uh, as you say hated Yeah, maybe uh, maybe
0: that's too strong a term but you're definitely being strongly criticized by different but by, <laughs> by different sides at different times
1: you learn a lot more quickly and more extensively about the fact that you said something that people didn't like. Okay. So, uh, the Amy Wax thing or, um, Sam Harris made a comment about, uh, suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. And then I made a comment about Sam Harris and John McWhorter and I kicked that around. And, um, you know, I, I I took exception to what I understood Sam to say, but I didn't quite get right what he had said. But you know, and my apologies, Sam, if you hear this, uh, because I do like you. <laughs> we'll
0: make sure he hears it.
1: <laughs> uh, but uh, that you know, that little bit of a firestorm of controversy. So I'm looking at the comments, and there's some people who are on my side, right on, right on, and there's some people who are on Sam's side. Glenn didn't treat him fairly and whatnot, and I'm aware of that mm-hmm. uh, instantly. Um, but I don't know I'm I'm, yeah as I say I'm kind of at a stage in my life where I'm pretty much doing my thing and I'm relatively impervious to the fact that there are haters out there haters are going to hate
0: right does it ever cause you to rethink about what you might say you know uh, positions you might take given the intensity of the blowback sometimes
1: well yeah uh, during the 2020 election season i had a formula uh which was i'm going to vote for biden but you shouldn't believe me because if i were going to vote for trump i would never tell you <laughs> so if you ask me who i'm going to vote for there's no information in my response you ask me who i'm going to vote for i'm going to vote for biden mm-hmm. but You should have no change of your prior estimate who I'm voting from, from Mm -hmm. the fact that I said that, because there's really only one answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So where does Glenn stand on Trump? Because one of my points that I've been uh, making over and over again in conversation with John McWhorter, who very forthrightly, as a good New Yorker, denounces Trump at every opportunity. He's a moron, he's an idiot, he's whatever, is that Hey, man, you know, like 45% of the population think the guy's, you know, think he should be president. I mean, maybe we ought to think about why they think that. Maybe we shouldn't reduce our reaction to Trump down to a, a personal evaluation of his character. And we should think a little bit more broadly about the structures of America. The Tectonic plates is my metaphor that are shifting under our feet in American culture and in politics of which the uh, ascendancy of Trump is one manifestation. And when we reduce our evaluation of this phenomenon to an assessment of his character, we're giving short shrift to the sentiments of those many, many millions who think that uh, he is representing them. He's their tribune, that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's as far as I would allow myself to go into the, oh, you're a Trump apologist Right world. Now, many people, uh, some of them dear friends of mine, some of them I actually live with <laughs> are saying, "Why are you not more vociferously denouncing this monstrous in, you know, imposition on American democracy?" Um, and I'm, in, I'm being invited excuse me, mm-hmm. to perform. I mean, I've been, you got a platform. People follow you. People respect you. They say, and they do. They, you know, Glenn, you're brilliant. Glenn, you should run for president. I get these kind of comments. Mm-hmm. You should be using your platform to denounce this gangster and thug and you know mm-hmm. moron and whatever. And I I refuse to do it, but <laughs> uh, I do that. Cautiously, I mean, I, I I am saying just as much as I dare say that's favorable to Trump. So, uh, it, and I dare not say anything further, even if I think it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because that would be, you know, maybe that would be the kiss of death. Maybe that would be, you know, that would... I, so I'm managing my brand, I, I must confess, by carefully selecting how it is that I react to uh, the Trump phenomenon so as to be able to maintain plausible deniability. Right. What gives you, well, I'll preface this with,
0: you would get a lot of points if you did denounce Trump. You know, in the circles that people like you and me sort of find ourselves in, you know, the elite institutional circles, yeah. and media, in the media, there's a lot of anti-Trump sentiment, to put it mildly. Yeah, and so you would get points for denouncing him. Um, it's a much—it's a hard position to take, even to sort of go for neutrality. What gives you the courage to not to, to stand up for the sort of the more neutral position? To stand up for the position where you don't sort of reflexively denounce
1: Trump? I can't answer that. I don't know. I appreciate that you think I'm courageous. Thank you. Where that. Uh, character trait of mine comes from, I'm not sure I can say, Uh, I can report to you that I hate to be bullied. Uh, You know, don't tell me what to think and don't tell me what to say, you know. Uh, So you want to call me a name, call me a name. But uh, if you want to change my mind, you had better make an argument. It had better be a good one, this kind of thing. So I don't like crowds. I don't like herds. I I don't like the See, I don't like to wave banners. Uh, I don't uh, care that much for virtue signaling um, as a practice. Um, And you know, I've, I've, uh, I was a black Reaganite conservative in the nineteen eighties. Okay, so (laughs) you know,
0: not a hugely uh, popular position. Yeah, that was
1: very unpopular in a lot of quarters. I got denounced by my own children. You know. Uh, for, what, did that, what did that feel like? It felt really, really terrible, actually, because I said, look, let, I can, you know, uh, respect me enough to give me the latitude to think for myself. We don't have to agree, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Um, and maybe you ought to stop and listen. There might be a certain amount of wisdom uh, here after all these decades of life. I have reasons for taking the positions that I do. I mean, maybe you ought to sit back and think about. Don't be so arrogant. Don't think you know everything. You're not that smart, kind of thing like that. But of course, I wouldn't say it like that. Uh, but 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 it's all you know. It's all good. We, we're we're happily uh, ensconced as uh, you know. I have five children, six grandchildren, and you know we get together with the, uh, their spouses and whatnot every year on the Outer Banks, North Carolina, for a week of uh bonding and all of that and uh you know it's all good is that a, is that a theme like that that seems to commonly come up
0: now in the sort of social media climate that I spend a lot of my time trying to trying to escape or failing to escape the idea that because you hold a politically different position you must be somehow bad or, or you know morally wrong like it's 45% of America would vote for Donald Trump to be the president. Right. And a lot of the response to that from uh, the quarters where like, I spend a lot of my time is that those 45% must be bad in some way. Same was happening to you with the discussions with your children about supporting Reagan. By the yeah, of way things. back. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that, is that just, is just that a fact of life? Is it, is it is it changing in any way?
1: Well, I think it's changing. Again, I don't... Um Have uh, chapter and verse on that. I'm I'm not uh, an academic studying that in a systematic way, Uh, but I but I think we have become much more uh, siloed and and much more uh, uh, kind of uh, divided into camps uh, who have a hard time talking uh, to one another. Uh, I, I was just reading Matt Taibbi's book, Hate. Ink, and I was very impressed by it. Uh, so far, I haven't I haven't quite finished, but I'm about halfway through. First
0: serialized on Substack, and then turned yeah, into a paperback.
1: I, I I have the paperback now. I didn't see it when uh, when he was putting these posts up, but uh, he has an analysis there about the interaction between media and uh, political uh, aspirants uh, and how things get framed and and uh, whatnot. And I think that the social media evolution factors into that. Because it becomes very uh, easy to, uh, the algorithms, I suppose, of recommended things that help, you know, to, to just go to the sites and read the stuff that you want to mm-hmm. read and talk to the people that you want to talk to who agree with you. And, you know, the demonization of the other side follows uh, pretty naturally and, uh, you know, nuance you know, suffers as a result.
0: Well, it must be, it's very difficult to do the opposite you've shown. You, your, own, your own kids sort of were denouncing you or disagreeing with you at least. And it's its hard to take the independent position, it seems like.
1: Yeah, I guess that's right. Um, I guess that's right. I've tried to have people on the show uh, who challenged me and my wife, LaJuan, my lovely wife, has uh, <laughs> encouraged me in this regard. Had Cornel West on the show, and, and we had a wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. I've had Brianna Joy Gray on the mm-hmm. show. i had Richard Wolf the Marxist economist, on the show. These are people that come at the issues that I'm concerned about rather differently than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm proud to be able to say that I can have, you know, cordial and productive conversations with them. And you know, I intend to do more of that. So, given
0: your experience uh, with. Uh, political discourse over the decades and given what you see happening now with social media um, and perhaps other aspects of um, publishing sort of intensifying tribalism uh, and given what you're experiencing when you have these kind of across the aisle conversations on the Glenn Show what, are you optimistic or pessimistic somewhere in between when it comes to um, how discourse is going how we might evolve as a culture?
1: Yeah, it's a big question. Um, Maybe I'm going to say pessimistic uh, because we are so polarized. Uh, And, uh, you know, I mean, to the point where large numbers of people question the outcome of elections. uh, And uh, that can go in both directions, by the way. I mean, Trump lost the most recent election for president, and he's a election denier and his followers to the extent that they don't acknowledge the legitimacy of Biden's election. But believe me, that's not over. There will be other elections, there will be different outcomes. And it's like the cat is out of the bag now on this. It becomes okay to, you know, um, uh, deny the legitimacy of the only process that we have for actually adjudicating these political disputes so uh, if you can't settle it in, within an institutional framework where everybody kind of accepts the rules and when they win great and when they lose well too bad but we'll we'll carry on if you can't do that well what's left uh, you know gangs of uh, thugs in the street uh, banging away at each other uh, you know that kind of thing or as uh, matt taibbi says uh, you know the person who disagrees you has to be hitler mm-hmm. you know there's nothing short of hitler so and then if they're hitler well Anything you can do to defeat Hitler is uh, is legitimate, and that's worrying. That's very worrying. On the other hand, it is possible to, to have a conversation with just about anybody instantly and to send it out to millions of people, and that's really pretty cool. Um, so the, I don't blame the medium for the fact that it can abet Partisan polarization and uh, division, uh, because it can also facilitate um, a uh, a different kind of discourse. And you know, there are there are actors here. Uh, Taibbi focuses on the commercial interests of uh, of the um, media. Uh, Political parties are also organizing, raising large amounts of money, using social media to raise the money to fund their uh, candidates and their campaigns and they have an interest in, you know, the negative campaigning is the way to go now. So many people are doing it and I assume negative campaigning is uh, uh, easier to do when you can put a uh, message in everybody's email inbox to tell them about how horrible the world is coming to an end. The world will end tomorrow if you don't give me $14.
0: $14 standing between uh you and the end of democracy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the same kind of thing coming from the other side. I mean, it, you know, both sides are are doing it. So, um, I actually, I was at a um, conference recently. and I learned about uh, the work of the organization called Braver Angels. Braver Angels is a nonprofit that tries to promote civil conversation across the partisan divide in political and cultural um, you know difference and I mean literally getting people together for breakfast and you know here's red here's blue and they actually get to see that the other side is not evil they're not Hitler they're just people who either do or do not affirm this position on abortion that position on the Second Amendment etc. It's run by a guy called David Blankenhorn, at least he was the founder. It's, it's a national organization and it's got a, a, a pretty good uh, track record. And one of the things that they're doing is that they're encouraging debates where, you know, high school kids are, uh, they bone up and, you know, and you, it, they, the whole point is get the kid to take the either side of the debate. You know, you have to be effectively able to argue either side of the debate mm-hmm. I think that's pretty good. I mean that forces someone to actually consider why is it that the person with whom I disagree holds the position that they hold? what are their arguments? Mm-hmm. I try to um to do that a little bit with uh, the so-called steel manning uh, right. function at my own podcast when I hear an argument, I try to imagine and then articulate what I think the best case for the other side is. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, if I do that well, the listener, if they tune in in the middle of the of the uh, podcast, won't know what side I actually hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, to the extent that I can succeed at that, I'm hopefully modeling a kind of intellectual uh, openness and a kind of, if you will, epistemic modesty—a kind of, you know, this may be what I think, but I'm not sure it's right. What's the best case for the other side? That kind of thing.
0: Has your friendship and these conversations with John McWhorter, who you know is different politically from you, yeah. has, has that changed the way? Has that changed any of your positions over time?
1: I don't know. Um, I mean, he and I have a lot of common ground on the the race uh, issue. His most recent book is called "Woke." racism and it is a, a full throated denunciation of the uh, Ibram X. Kindi, uh Robin D'Angelo kind of you know view of uh the you know structural racism, white supremacy kind of you know uh, talk and and he gives chapter and verse to that effect and he and I agree about that so some of our ongoing conversation is articulating our respective views on those kinds of questions where we reinforce one another. On the other hand, um, you know, I have, I'm have i more conservative than he is, and, you know, he knows it and I know it. Uh, so when uh, issues come up that we do uh, conflict on, we, we can uh, exhibit this practice of um, arguing and disagreeing but nevertheless maintaining a kind of comity. Uh, but you asked me specifically had I, had my thinking about any substantive issue changed as a result of a conversation with John, and I'm not sure I can identify. He hasn't convinced me of anything yet. We might, we might get there. Do you, has, do you think he'll be
0: disappointed by that? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know. Uh, John was just uh, honored uh, by the... Uh, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, which is a organization, a very well funded and well staffed organization, uh, promoting viewpoint diversity in higher education, and trying to equip uh, trustees and alumni of major uh, academic institutions to be able to defend from their respective positions the. Uh, goals of free speech and open inquiry, and so get universities to adopt the Chicago principles, and so on. Um, and John was honored uh, as uh, outstanding contributions to liberal arts education, and I was asked to give some remarks, and I did do, and I've uh, put them up at uh, at the Substack <laughs> for the world to see, and. Uh, they are very laudatory and, you know, uh, very appreciative of a friendship of a kind of, you know, intellectual friendship that we've developed over a decade, over a decade plus. Uh, so I have great uh, respect and admiration for John. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we have this rapport. I mean, we, you know, it's it's kind of a, a shtick now. It's kind of an act uh, that, that we perform, uh, every other week. Uh, and I look forward to it. I'm sure he'd say the
0: same laudatory things right back to you. This might sound like a dumb question, but why is
1: race such an important issue for you? Why do you speak up about this? I'm black. I grew up in Chicago, uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, Part of my self-understanding and my identity derived from my origins and that experience earlier in life. Um, these communities of African Americans and the big cities that struggle with one or another issue are places that I know. Um, it's, it's these cultural and religious and other uh, aspects resonate with me. Uh, if you ask me to define myself, I will inevitably find myself talking about my race and my uh, identity as a black American. Not only that, I mean, on many things, but that would be one of the things that I would call attention to. But your question is well put, well taken, because you know there, there's an argument that, uh, you know, come on, I mean... Grow up, get over it, let get past it. I mean, I'm brown, you're black, she's yellow, they're white. What the heck? That's superficial. That's, there's nothing real deep there whatsoever. Uh, that's a kind of superstition, you know. It's kind of belief in something that's not real. Uh, we should transcend it. I talk about it all the time at the podcast about growing beyond the kind of narrow confines of, of racial identity as the be-all and end-all. But the the narrative and the history and the culture of African Americans is a real thing and uh, a sense of uh, the meaning of life that finds some connection up to those things for an individual born as I was into that community is perfectly defensible. It seems to me there are other examples that one could give. You can think about Jewishness or you could think about uh, Irish or Italian ethnics or Mm -hmm religious, uh, you know, Catholics or something like that, and that would be a part of a person's identity, not the whole sum and substance of it, but certainly something worth affirming. And it's something like that.
0: And how do you feel these conversations have been going recently in America, race conversations?
1: Oh, I mean, we're in deep trouble. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think that I want to give one concrete example the police and um, the maintenance of order and crime and uh, police brutality. Michael Brown, uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, you know, uh, black lives matter, white lives matter. So Here's what I think. What I think is that the um, character of the racial reckoning that summer of 2020, um, Floyd George Floyd exposed the um, difficulty that we have in the country with dealing honestly and effectively uh, with the problems of racial inequality and disparity. I mean, I think the fact that twice as many whites as blacks are killed by police every year is pertinent. I I think that the idea that it's open season is what the attorney, Ben Crump, who represents uh, families of people who have been killed by police and does so very effectively. Uh, that's what he calls it in his book, open season, it's open season on black people. I think that's a, uh, I'm not gonna call it a lie. Uh, it's a hyper hyperbolic exaggeration of the actual circumstance. Um, I think if I wanna talk about crime, punishment, violence in American cities, I don't wanna see that conversation proceed in racial Terms. I want to see it proceed in human terms. Uh, I think there's a huge downside to the racialization of that kind of conversation. Uh, I think the idea that the United States of America is a white supremacist, um, racist uh, nation founded on uh, slavery and genocide, that idea in the 21st century um, is... Wrong. I mean, profoundly wrong and and unhelpful, and yet I can see the um, uh, interests that are built up around framing America's serious problems in those terms flourishing those interests. Um, I mean, I, I said this, I, I had a piece in Quillette uh, unspeakable truths about race in America. I said, what's going on with the family? How are black men and women interacting with each other and reproducing and uh, the children and how they're being raised and what's the structure of home life? And I say, you know, seven in ten kids born to a black woman or a woman without a husband. And I say, this is a monumental social uh, failure in the, in the uh, nature of our communal life. Uh things like that, I say, you look at the differences in the academic achievement and the cognitive functioning of these populations. I had Charles Murray on the show to talk about this. These are real things. I say, look at the violence. You, you want to? You think Black Lives Matter? Then, you know, going from 10,000 to 20,000 homicides in a, in a year uh, ought to at least Uh, attract your attention. You ought to at least have something to say about that. That's an elephant in the room that you're going to ignore. Believe me, the rest of America can see it. They can see it in Chicago. They can see it in Philadelphia. They know what's going on. They don't go downtown at 10 o'clock at night. They're not willing to go into a restaurant and come out after a few drinks and stumble to their car uh, after dark because they're afraid somebody's going to carjack them or somebody is going to rob them or worse. Um, and so on. And I'm saying, you have nothing to say about that. And moreover, I, I, I think the political interests are uh, to promote this sort of thing. Uh, take the Georgia election integrity law that was passed into law. The president of the United States called it Jim Crow 2.0. Major league baseball canceled their all-star game in Atlanta to punish the state because the state was a racist bastion. All of that was simply false. It was false. It was in the Democrats' interest to frame it that way, but it was false. Um, okay, there's another side to this. Are the Republicans trying to make hay by pointing to crime and implicitly suggesting that there's a racial issue? That yeah, yeah, that's going on. The well is being poisoned, I think. So I have I have uh, great concerns about that. Yeah.
0: Do you lose friends over taking these positions?
1: Yeah. Uh, Although (laughs) I don't have too many of those left to lose. (laughs) Uh, Fifteen years ago when I did my first uh, podcast at Blogging Heads, uh, it was, as I mentioned, uh, after I'd given these lectures at Stanford and my friend, the philosopher Josh Cohen, invited me on to talk about it. My lectures were called Race, Incarceration, and American Values, the Tanner Lectures, two lectures in 2007. And I was on fire with rage about the over-incarceration of black people in the country, about the huge footprint of the carceral state, prison-industrial complex, school-to-prison pipeline, and so on. Uh, I was as far on the left on that issue as I uh, could have ever imagined myself being. And I had friends who were saying, yeah, right on, right on. And I got invited to, you know, uh, repeat my denunciation of the mass incarceration and racially tinged thing. Um, I, I got into a dispute with my uh, longtime colleague, James Q. Wilson now dead uh, that's very distinguished political scientist who um, was, you know, author of the broken windows uh, policing theory and. His book, Thinking About Crime, that's published in the seventies, had a big impact on the Reagan era. Um, uh, you know, ratcheting up of uh, and which was con- carried on after Reagan. Of course, Bill Clinton presided over continued increase in the numbers in prison and jails. Is we, we we all know that. Uh, but but Jim Wilson was a, a uh, you know intellectual um, advocate uh, on behalf of a stricter. Uh, law enforcement and so on and um, I fell out with him I, I, he died I wrote an intellectual obituary that I wish I could take back I, I basically said he died with blood on his hands because I was so angry mm. about his continued support for a system that I thought had run amok mm. so I lost some friends on the right in that uh, but as the years have gone by and uh, as uh, the situation that I've been hinting at here earlier in terms of the level of violence and disorder in inner city communities has become what it is. I've kind of changed my tune, you know, and, and I'm I'm not as much on the anti-prison bandwagon. I have a lot of uh, sympathy for the kinds of ideas that uh, people like Ralph Monguel, the uh, fellow here at the Manhattan Institute, who uh, I've had on the uh, show recently, uh, talking about his book about uh why decarceration and de policing is a bad idea um and i and i I think he's closer to getting it right than wrong, and uh, I'm worried about the victims of crime, not only about the way that we treat people who commit it and so on and so I've lost friends. That was the question the question have I lost right. friends? Yes, I've lost friends, but you know and and I've gained new friends
0: right. I mean, the positions you're taking right now again. In certain circles, not the not the popular ones, um, and I'm wondering to what extent does having a long career and having seen certain things come and go uh, influence the way you think about something like, uh, you know, what's happened in the wake of the the killing of George Floyd and the the social and political culture and of these last few years and questions of white supremacy and race. Does it does it does it influence um, how you think about what starts to take you know um the arguments that you decide to like go to the death on and the arguments you decide to let go, given what you've seen in the history,
1: yeah, I guess it does i i I guess it does i mean I, I think <sighs> so i've I've mentioned my lovely wife on a number of occasions because we have this ongoing debate uh in our home about political issues, and I'm able to say. Look at what I said in 2007 about this, because if you say that I don't care, well, that's not true. I'm the same guy that said so. I use my archive, my personal archive of political uh, activity and and public intellectual work to support the view that I'm really much deeper and more complicated than the uh, cartoon picture that you want to project me. Oh, you're just one of those people who thinks that, uh, you know, capitalism is great and you don't give a damn about the poor. You think every black person should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, I don't think that. My views are much more nuanced and rich and complicated than that. Look, I've, over the course of my life, taken this position, taken that position, and so on. And it's not a pendulum swinging back and forth. That's the wrong metaphor. I'm deepening and making more subtle and, and more nuanced the... Uh, sensibilities that I bring to uh, these questions uh, and I'm you know we have this uh, at, at Substack we have this feature that um, uh, Nikita uh, Petrov and and Mark Sussman have uh, helped me develop called the Old Glenn and the New Glen mm. so these are uh, kind of face offs where a 20 year old video of me giving a lecture where I'm taking one position and a two-year-old video of me giving the lecture where I'm taking the opposite position or put face-to-face with each other, and then I'm interviewed by my interlocutor, by Nikita or Marcus, to, you know, okay, what's up with that? You know, which which one of these guys has got it right? How do you do, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how this all ends, and it does end. I'm painfully aware of the fact that we are all mortal but I like to think that I'm on a higher plane today than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, warts and all. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like to think that I'm getting closer to the truth. So, looking back on your life, um,
0: you're writing this memoir now, yeah. Uh, which I understand has been uh, a a work in progress for a a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been threatening to write this book for the better part of yeah. When I I took a leave 2015-16, now that's seven years ago, from Brown University, and I went out to Stanford to the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral and Social Sciences, Uh, Margaret Levy, who's just stepped down as the director, was kind enough to invite me, and I had a project description. The project description was, I am going to be writing my memoir in which I reflect on my political journey and my personal life and so on and so on. And it was a great year. It it was. I I learned a lot from my colleagues there. I worked on it. I thought about it. I did various different things, but it it didn't get written. uh, And it hasn't yet been completed. But I'm happy to say... Uh, that it is very far along, and uh, my agent uh, and uh, my editor are uh, are uh, very excited about the progress that has been made, and I, I'm pretty sure that the book is going to get over to the publisher uh, in the next few months. What's been difficult about writing it? Uh, well, you have to overcome being lazy. <laughs> uh... You have to figure out how you're going to tell, uh, tell the story. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I don't have anything original to say about how difficult it is to actually produce uh, as a writer. I, I talk with Mark Sussman about this uh, all the time. He and I are, are kind of uh, working together on it. We are more than kind of working together on it. He's uh, helping me produce this book, and, and there's kind of uh, what we call the yikes factor. Which is when you actually pull the cover off and you look at the life and it's not politics this is life mm-hmm. you know some of it is pretty ugly then mm-hmm. that guy the guy that abandoned his kid or that betrayed his wife or that was living a kind of life that is not dignified and respectable mm-hmm. uh, You know,
0: is it tough to confront
1: yeah it's tough to confront.
0: Mm, some people might not know this about you, that for a while, and, and while a very successful academic... At, were you at Harvard at some point? Yeah, time? I was at Harvard. You're leading a double life, and you're on the sort of...
1: I was a cocaine addict and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I had a mistress uh, stashed away that uh, it, it blew up in my face when we got into a fight that became public, and she accused me of battery, which was not what, I, what happened, but, yeah, I mean, it was... This was thirty five years ago, so uh, since I'm not running for the senate thirty five year old conflicts with women uh probably not as relevant uh but in any case yeah uh, i was I was this bad boy mm-hmm. with a nightlife and a and a a kind of reckless disregard for uh the normal constraints uh thought I was superman, I thought I was Baddest cat on the block. You just you know, thought you could, could. You just anything. thought you
0: could do that. You could be the academic at Harvard. You could be the the night the night's cat.
1: Uh, yeah, I thought, uh, and, and I did do it uh, until it blew up in my face. Uh, and then I found myself with a serious cocaine problem, and you know there was inpatient treatment, and there was halfway houses, and there was relapses, and I eventually got uh, religion, literally, and. Stood on my two feet, put my marriage back together. We had two children subsequently who are now in their 30s. This was three decades ago. But yeah, I went through the valley of the shadow of death. Came out on the other side.
0: Did you think it was something that you were going to be able to recover from?
1: Well, there was a while there where I didn't. Uh, Then there was a time when I didn't know. Um, So... Uh, One day at a time is what they teach in the uh, recovery world. And it's true. You just got to get through today without drinking. Uh, I knew that I could do that. I knew I didn't have to drink. And, of course, I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about crack, cocaine. But I knew I didn't have to use today. And, you know, put enough of those days together and you got a year. Put enough of that together, you got five years. You don't have to use. Your life is better. Um, so uh, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity so
0: in writing memoirs one of the things that people have done it say or actually critics say this there's a tendency to either over glorify the self or undersell the self to be too modest or be to, to be too immodest and so how are you trying to walk the line
1: for me it's very obvious that you must disclose discrediting information about yourself in order to win the confidence of the reader such that when you get to the part where you want to glorify yourself, you have the reader's credibility. So even if my goal is to toot my own horn at the end of the day, when they turn the last page of the book and I want them to think, Lynn is really a wonderful guy. What a human being. What a life. To get there, we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. We got to, you know, I had a friend, the late Anthony Campbell was his name. He's a preacher and a uh, professor of religion at Boston University. He's dead. He's been dead for a while. But there's got to, he used to tell me uh, about sermons about when the black preacher is in the Baptist church and he's up there in the well and he's trying to get the audience to shout the hallelujah and he's trying to get them to see the glory of God and whatnot. There's got to be some funk on it. It's got to get ugly. you you got to show the power of God in this case, in this example, to resurrect. He ain't resurrecting unless you're already dead. you you got to go there whether it's about sex or it's about alcohol or it's about pride or it's about greed or it's about cowardliness or whatever you got to go there you got to show them mm-hmm. and i think that's true here i think there you know maybe you can go too far one way or the other maybe you can be from page 1 to the end tooting your own horn all the time or maybe from page 1 to the end it's always in the valley it's always in the valley and uh, neither of those i think is 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 quite right but um, uh, there is credibility to be had from the disclosure of of discrediting information, and I think that that's an interesting and ironic. Uh, you know, I gain credibility by showing myself to be and not especially uh, pure. Yeah, not a pure and good guy in every respect, because we, you know, that's true about everybody, isn't it? Well, it's the same for me. I'm perfect, Tim.
0: I'll never do anything wrong.
1: <laughs> Except for
0: English. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, is this going to be the last book you write?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, but I don't know what the next book is. Uh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of easing myself into retirement and uh, maybe I'll take a crack at fiction. I don't know. But let's get this one done. Then we can talk about the next one.
0: Excellent. Very good. And just to finish off here, you've mentioned Bob Wright, you've mentioned Matt Taibbi, you've mentioned uh, Nikita Petrov. These are all writers on Substack. Yeah, am just wondering, uh, and John McWater. And Emily Ost. Emily Oster, yeah. It's been, a good, it's been a good show. I like for
1: Barry Weiss too. We're, we're buddies.
0: Oh, uh, right. Yes. And I heard she did a very good
1: interview with you for her podcast. She did, do, yeah.
0: Um, are there any other Substack writers that you that you read and you'd recommend to your people?
1: Well, uh, I read Taibbi. Um And uh, uh, I read Andrew Sullivan. Uh, I read Alex Berenson, everybody. Why do you read uh, Alex Berenson? Well, because it's entertaining. Mm. I mean, and because this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This is the president of the United States. Really pissed me off. Uh, And because um, I'm married to the lovely LaJuan. And she deeply distrusts the pharmaceutical industry and this whole uh, vax uh, stuff. Uh, she, she you know, has got to be able to certify that she has been vaccinated if she wants to travel, as we did recently, to St. Martin for a lovely uh, time in the sun and all of that. But she has, in a way, educated me about uh, a lot of the issues. And so I... I understand that Berenson is, uh, you know... The the Atlantic
0: Atlantic called him the wrongest man uh, about the pandemic or something like that. Uh,
1: And I have, you know, heard him denounced from every possible quarter. I'm a non-paying subscriber. The emails come to my inbox and I find myself reading them and uh, he's not always wrong.
0: Is there something about you that sort of wants you to... Be open to views uh, that the the official narrative has denounced as a way to sort of
1: fight back okay so that's one of these discrediting things about self that I'm gonna have to deal with I call myself a contrarian let's say I don't like bandwagons Uh, uh, am I being a contrarian for contrarian's sake Am I, you know, refusing to acknowledge things that are true simply because most people think them to be true and I have to therefore be on the other side? Do I get a certain amount of self-aggrandizement and satisfaction from sneering at the popular opinion and taking the slings and arrows that come from that? Probably, yeah.
0: So it's fun and difficult.
1: Yeah, uh, but at least I'm aware of this tick. Mm.
0: Well, Glenn, thank you very much for joining me on this conversation. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for publishing on Substack and uh, thanks for all the works that you've brought into the world.
1: Thank you for Substack. It's a wonderful platform. I know this is not supposed to be a commercial for Substack, but it's changed my life. I am now a publisher. I, I, I have a voice that reaches tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I've created a community of people who are interested in what I have to say. I have contributors who uh, send in interesting pieces, which I can then uh, uh, show uh, to my uh, followers at Substack. Um, So I'm, I'm very, very happy with my association with your enterprise.
0: That means a lot. Thank you very much for saying that.
1: You're welcome.